Well, hello everyone. My name is JB with NBW Ministries, proclaiming the clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message from my studio beneath the sky nestled in the tall timbers of Colorado. Thank you for joining us. It is Monday, July 24th, 2023, and this is episode three of our series, Dr. Hickson Answers Your Questions. We started this a couple of weeks ago, and it's really been a blessing to me and a time saver as well. Uh, what we do is we encourage you to send in your questions by email, as uh, many people were already doing. And then instead of me uh, responding individually uh, to each email, we collect those into a folder, and then uh, periodically I will uh, answer them over the air. That way, uh, number one, it's a little bit easier for me, and number two, it gives the opportunity for uh, everyone else to benefit from your question and the answer uh, as well. So I'll dive into uh, the questions here in just a moment, but just wanted to uh, mention uh, thank you so much for all your encouragement and uh, prayers and support. God is continuing to uh, just do some amazing things here at NBW Ministries. We especially appreciate your prayers for our ministry and family over the last few weeks uh, as we dealt with the flooding and hail damage uh, because of the storms here in Colorado. Uh, we are pretty much on the other side of that now. We still have some work to do in the basement to uh, repair some of the sheetrock and doors. And, and do the flooring down there. So we're not moved back in yet to the basement, but the outside water mitigation work is pretty much behind us. We're just putting the finishing touches on uh, some of the landscaping uh, that will go in after uh, we've finished all of the uh, retaining walls and drain pipes and all of those types of things. So thanks for your prayers for that. It had been a while since I'd given an update. Just wanted to mention that uh, briefly. If you haven't had a chance yet, I encourage you to listen to our podcast from this morning. Earlier today, I had Lucas on, and we talked about Jesus' enigmatic parables of the kingdom. And we kind of gave some background on the parables in general and talked about the mysteries about the kingdom in these uh, parables in Matthew 13. And then we got through the parable of the, uh, the sower. And so uh, we're going to pick that up again next week when Lucas is back on as we continue talking about the parables. Uh, lots of great stuff coming up this week. Uh, don't forget Prophecy Night tomorrow night, World Events Update with Randy on Wednesday. I've got Brad Maston back on Thursday. I'll be a guest on Stand Up for the Truth Radio with uh, Mary Danielson on Friday. And also on Friday, uh, my good friend and technologist Shane will be back on to give us an update on AI. And then uh, Saturday, uh, we have another Saturday podcast this week. We're doing a limited series, five or six Saturdays, something like that, on uh, preparedness. And I'll have Shane, uh, Randy back on, rather, on Saturday to talk about how to prepare for various uh, scenarios. But let's jump right in uh, for this podcast to... Uh, the questions, and I'll start, and I'm going to go through these kind of fast. Some will, some of them I'll have a little bit longer answers to, a little bit more involved answers, but most of these are, are pretty quick, and uh, we'll try to get through as many of them as we can. Uh, I'll start uh, with a question here about Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 and 8. Let me read that for you. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, cl clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And so this person was really asking for just a, an understanding of, of that passage. What are the righteous acts of the saints? And what is this idea of uh, preparation? So uh, we need to understand the marriage of the Lamb is, uh, takes place in heaven after the rapture, while the tribulation is going, um, you know, on uh, on the earth, uh, the church, of course, is the bride of Christ. 
Um, that's pretty clear. And in chapter 19 here that we just read, the bride is uh, Christ's newly married wife, having been joined to him in uh, heavenly matrimony uh, immediately after the rapture. The preparation here that's talking about is for the marriage supper of the Lamb, which takes place later. That will take place when Christ comes back and the church comes back with him, riding on white horses. And the kickoff party, so to speak, of the millennial phase of the kingdom will be this massive marriage supper of the Lamb, and that will take place on earth. Sometimes people get confused because God uh, uses the marriage metaphor in a variety of contexts in, in God's Word. God referred to himself as Israel's husband in the Old Testament. Um, but it, most of the time, in fact, almost always when that figure of speech is used in the Old Testament, it's talking about Israel as an unfaithful wife. And uh, uh, in fact, I think only Isaiah uh, uses marriage in the context of Israel and God in a positive uh, way, but of course Isaiah is you know talking about God's future for national Israel and the remnant and so forth. But in Revelation 19, this can't be talking about Israel because uh, this bride comes to earth with Christ when He returns uh, in Revelation 19, uh, starting in verse 11. Uh, also, Old Testament saints will not experience the resurrection of their bodies until the second coming. That's according to Daniel 12:1 and 2. Um, so, uh, you know, this is, has to be uh, the church. Jesus Christ is the Lamb. John the Baptist called him the Lamb of God. And uh, he also referred to himself as the bridegroom. And so, uh, you know, the timing of the marriage of the Lamb, again, is in heaven. And uh, as far as the, the, the uh, verse 8 there where we read uh, the bride was uh, adorned, uh, in fine linen, uh, clean and bright, and the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Um, well, you know, this is describing the preparation of the bride for the wedding feast that I mentioned that's going to take place on earth. And uh, these wedding garments are appropriate for one in God's presence. It it's, uh, refers to the righteous deeds of the saints. Uh, you know, uh, not our positional righteousness in the sense of being declared righteous before God by faith, but our good deeds, uh, which, of course, also are by God's grace. But uh, essentially, it's saying that we need to be dressed appropriately for this uh, marriage feast, this wedding supper of the Lamb. And uh, in the context, it, it kind of con is contrasted uh, with the uh, you know the uh, gaudy uh, garments of the of the harlot there in chapter 17 uh, so it's just a beautiful picture of that marriage supper and the marriage of the lamb so thanks for that question this next question here uh, is about um, Genesis chapter 4 uh, verses 14 and 15 so let me call that up here uh, so I'll have it in front of me. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I, sh I shall be hidden from your face. This is talking about Cain and Abel. Um, and uh, the sign that uh, the Lord put on Cain, or the mark, if you will, the Lord said, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, uh, lest anyone finding him uh, should kill him. So what is this mark? That's what the person wanted to know, uh, this mark that's on uh, Cain. Good question. Um, it's, you know, you have to let the Bible speak where it speaks and remain silent where it's uh, silent. Um, and, but, you know, I think as best we can tell is that um, 
you know, the the sign was a, an, a, a some kind of an identifying mark uh, that would you know keep people from uh, killing him. Um, that's what the text says. We don't really know beyond that. Um, uh, you know, one uh, view is that. Um, you know, this was some type of a horn growing out of the middle of Cain's forehead. That goes back to an old Jewish interpretation. Uh, there's some medieval paintings that talk about that depict Cain with a horn on his head. Uh, but um, uh, best we can do is it's just some kind of a, an identifying mark. God, God uses marks, you know, in a variety of ways. In fact, in the Book of Revelation, we see. Uh, marks put on the 144,000 to protect them. We see the mark of the beast put on people who've rejected the gospel, that kind of thing. So um, don't know much more than what the text says. Sorry, I can't uh, speculate much beyond that. The next question here uh, is uh, uh, related to an interview that this person uh, has heard, and they wanted to ask a question about the delusion that Paul speaks of in 2 Thessalonians uh, there, chapter 2, in, in verses 11 and 12, uh, and the fact that many people will get saved during the tribulation. So, yeah, that's a, you know, a, it makes sense that you would wonder about that because, on the one hand, Paul tells us that during the tribulation, people will be more inclined to be deceived and blinded to the gospel, 2 Thess 2. But yet, we also read in Revelation 7 that there's an untold number of every nation, tribe, tongue, and language that get saved. So, uh, the, the gospel is powerful, and many people will believe it, uh, but many will be deceived. I believe it will be harder to get saved for those left behind at the rapture uh, because of the strong delusion, but not impossible. Now, it's interesting. Over the years of studying this, I've actually changed my view a bit on that. I, I remember when I first uh, wrote uh, my book, uh, What Lies Ahead, years ago with the Mark Fontecchio. Uh, that's an eschatology text. Um, I espouse the view in there that those who heard the gospel prior to the rapture will not have an opportunity to be saved because they would be deceived uh, during the tribulation. Uh, but I, as I revisited that text uh, several years ago, it really became clear that that's kind of a speculation and supposition. You can't really prove it uh, unwaveringly from the text. My grandfather held that view, which is one of the reasons that I kind of adopted that view. But uh, trying to be open and honest about what the text says and what it doesn't, the best we can say is that um, you know it will be difficult for people left behind to get saved, but they will uh, do it. But certainly there's no tension between 2 Thessalonians 2 and Revelation 7. One just talks about it'll be harder to, to be you know to be saved because of the great delusion and deception. The other mentions that many people will get saved. So we reconcile those those two by saying that in spite of the difficulty, uh, God's grace will will see a number of people uh, saved. So thank you for that question. Uh, we've got another question here talking about the politics of Israel. Uh, and how that's so confusing. I'm so thankful for this question. They go on to ask, you know, you know, given the fact that Israel was the test shot, a test site for the um, the shots, the pandemic shots, the you know, the gene altering bio injections, um, and uh, you know, also 99.9% .9 of the people took the shot there. Uh, essentially, this person is just asking, how do you reconcile modern day Israel with the fact that Israel is God's chosen nation, and what's the connection between the U.S. and Israel? Well. I've talked about this a lot through the years. In fact, I talked about it uh, 
last week at Prophecy Night when I talked about the rise in anti-Semitism. And that is, we need to understand that Israel is not in the land today in belief. And, um, you know, people have pointed out to me, and I may get to this question later, so if I repeat myself, I apologize. Uh, I, I vaguely remember getting a question about the potential two returns of Israel to the land, one being in Revelation or uh, Isaiah 11, where it talks about how God will bring them back to the land a second time. But I take that passage in, Revel in Isaiah 11. I've got Revelation on the mind here. In Isaiah 11, I take that as when it says a second time, not referring to two regatherings of Israel to the land, but just, you know, he's regathered them to the land, you know, uh, incompletely and partially through the years many, many times. But there's going to come a second or final time and that will not be until the second coming of Christ. So I don't see, uh, as I've said before, 1948 as the fulfillment of a specific prophecy. There are, after all, no prophecies that have to be fulfilled before the rapture. That rapture is the next great uh, prophecy to be fulfilled uh, on God's prophetic uh, calendar. Um, so I don't take that passage quite the way as, as a different person asked. But nevertheless, back to the question at hand, you know, Israel... In, is in the land today in unbelief. Clearly, from a, a geographic perspective and a geopolitical perspective, the regathering of Israel or the reestablishment, I should say, of Israel as a nation on May 15, 1948, uh, was prophetically significant. It set the stage to, to have an Israel on the map to which you know, the, Jesus could you know, regather them into the land when he comes back and, and, and in which the Antichrist can set up shop you know, when he signs the treaty. There's got to be an Israel to have a treaty with those kinds of things. So, uh, you know, I think it was prophetically significant, but Israel is not there in belief. And so there are a lot of bad people, bad actors, bad leaders within Israel that are not believers in Jesus Christ that are helping to further the Luciferian conspiracy and, in fact, are part of the big globalist uh, takeover. And the United States uh, considers Israel an ally, and we should, and so we, we defend each other as needed in terms of the political uh, realm and, and warfare. Uh, but neither the United States nor present modern-day Israel are, you know, perfect and without error, and neither one of us can say that, you know, uh, we are uh, sort of God's divine nation or something like that. We are, uh, you know, uh, a nation made up of, uh, in, in America anyway, patriots, who some of which are doing their best to stand firm on the Constitution and, and uh, defend liberty. But sadly, there are a lot of uh, you know, sellouts and a lot of controlled agents and a lot of Luciferian uh, co-conspirators and accomplices that are uh, really pulling the strings of power in both America and Israel. So hopefully that helps with that question. We got a question here about Matthew 27 and the token resurrection that takes place that took place at the time of Christ's resurrection. Uh, and I actually had this question asked at a prophecy night uh, some time ago it might have been a couple of sessions ago uh, so if you you know if you've already heard me answer this I apologize for the repetition but this emailer had apparently not listened to that podcast uh, or didn't catch it but the question is what in the world's going on with the graves that were opened at the time of Christ's resurrection around Jerusalem uh, some people have suggested in fact after I commented on this at a prophecy night I got an email from someone trying to equate 
those graves with the ones uh, that they allege Jesus went to during the three days he was in the grave, where he went to uh, the graves of the some believers and set them free to come, you know, all the way to heaven. I don't hold that view. I've talked about that at length. Uh, I think we might have another question about that in today's list of questions, uh, so I may come back to that. But I just don't hold that view of Ephesians there. I think <clears throat> that's a misunderstanding of the context. And so given that I don't hold that view, connecting that to the graves that popped open at the resurrection of Christ would make no sense. Uh, best we can say is it's one of those anomalies, one of those uh, strange occurrences that I, I think is a foretaste uh, of the glory that's to come and a picture, a foreshadowing of the resurrection of all believers someday. For church, for the church age saints, that's at the rapture. For Old Testament and tribulation saints, that's at the second coming. Um, but yeah, it's not normative. It was not something that uh, fulfills a specific Old Testament prophecy. It was just a, a way, I think, to highlight that Christ had defeated death and someday all the graves of the earth uh, will be open. So thank you for that question. Uh, here's a question. Uh, I, I love this question. Why are pastors not talking about Bible prophecy? Um, well, uh, that's a great question. And I, I, you know, obviously I can't speak for every pastor, but I have taken note of the fact that there is a utter dearth of information out there from today's pulpits about the end times. I've talked before about how I call those churches the 84% club, and uh, that's a calculation that I get from uh, the fact that one-third of the Bible, approximately, is uh, Bible pro is prophecy, and one-half of that one-third is unfulfilled prophecy relating to the end times. And so if you're ignoring end times Bible prophecy, you're ignoring you know one-sixth of the Bible. One-sixth is about 16%, so that leaves 84%. So a lot of pastors are content to teach 84% of the Bible and ignore 16% of it. I believe we ought to teach the whole counsel of God, and especially so in these last days where so much stage setting is going on and, and it just seems like we're getting closer and closer to the end of the age. Um, but I do think that it's part of a fulfillment of prophecy. Remember, uh, Peter warns us uh, that uh, scoffers will come. This is Second Peter chapter three verse three. Scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust, and saying, "Where is the promise of his coming?" Um, and so, there's a lot of people out there that have no use for Bible prophecy. Shame on them, especially if they're Christian pastors and Bible teachers. They're going to be held to a, a you know high account uh, for neglecting. Uh, the end of the story. I mean, I don't know why people uh, think they can read, teach, and study the Bible and ignore the end. Uh, I mean, that just makes no sense to me. We don't, we don't do that with anything else. We don't leave before the end of a movie. We don't put down our novels before we read the last few chapters. We want to know the end of the story, and certainly God wants us to know it, or he would not have put it in Scripture. The next question is um, uh, one that we've we've talked about a lot, but I always like to you know give answers when people send in these heartfelt questions. But they're talking about the digital ID and the coming uh, digital currency. How can people that are on pensions avoid signing up for the digital ID and also people who own their own businesses? Well, again, it's difficult. Uh, I think you need to resist as long as you possibly can. And at the end of the you know, of it all, when you're forced into it, you're going to have to make some sacrifices. I will will not personally sign up for the digital ID, whatever the cost. Just like I 
made the decision that my family and I would not take the, uh, you know, injection, the gene-altering bio-injections. And, you know, it meant not doing some things that we wanted to do. Uh, and uh, that's okay. Uh, I understand that the closer we get to the full-spectrum planetary control grid that's rolled out uh, during the One World System, which, by the way, we may have to endure part of. We, we won't be here when the Antichrist takes the helm, but if the Lord's coming doesn't happen soon, we could all very well be living here during a One World System. The Bible never says the Antichrist inaugurates the One World System. He just takes the helm of it, uh, and then Christ... Uh, kicks him off of the fake throne and takes the throne himself and rules in the divine global uh, system of king, a kingdom of peace, righteousness, and justice. So uh, I think we need to be cognizant of this fact and be aware that we could be facing these types of difficult uh, moments. And so what I would say is, you know, come what may, don't do it. You have to be self-sufficient, be prepared, find a way uh, to, um, and, uh, you know, uh, you know, just uh, live live without. Uh, again, it's not a moral issue. We're not talking about the mark of the beast here. That won't come into play until after the rapture uh, for those left behind. Um, so it's not a moral issue. I think it's a wisdom issue. And so, uh, you know, if you're on a pension, well, you may have to not get your pension if it means taking the digital ID, which means you're going to have to have other means of feeding your family and providing food and shelter and all the things that you need. By the time we get to that point, though, and I've said this many times, I think we're going to be so into an end of the world as we know it type scenario that those types of questions aren't going to matter anymore. You know, at some point, you know, you when when, when the life as we know it has changed you're not really thinking in traditional terms of how am I going to get my pension. You're just thinking in terms of survival. So sorry I don't have a more encouraging answer for that, but my answer you know, is consistent and, and stays the same there. Um, okay, so here's a question. Uh, this person says, their pastor appears to be a grace-oriented pastor, um, uh, and yet he in a archived sermon that she or he, this whoever this person is, was listening to, uh, the pastor uh, uh, used a cuss word or, 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 or so forth. And they're wondering, you know, why he would do that given the clear teaching in Scripture about wholesome uh, language. Um, and they said, look, I'm not trying to be legalistic, but I'm wondering if I should continue listening to this preacher. Uh, well, you know, that's a very specific question, a very personal uh, question. Obviously, I, I don't know why a, any pastor that's teaching the Word of God would use inappropriate language. Um, I don't know the whole story or the whole context, but yeah, I would that would raise a red flag to me as well. I uh, can't really give you advice beyond that other than maybe talk to the pastor kind of share your concern and see if this is a systemic problem with this person and their language, or was it just an off day, you know? Uh, I mean, uh, we all have those off days where we hit our thumb with a hammer or something and the wrong words come out and uh, we confess that and move on. But uh, so, yeah, hopefully that helps give you a little bit of, you know, some direction on that one. Uh, here's a great question. I really am thankful that I got this question and, uh, it really goes to the heartbeat of our ministry here at Not By Works Ministries, and that is Jesus died for the sins of the whole world and took their punishments upon himself. And that's the way the person states the premise before asking the question. 
And I say a hearty amen to that. 1 John 2, 2, Christ died for our sins and not for ours only, but the sins of the whole world. He is the propitiation, actually, it says, for our sins. He satisfied the wrath of God. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that's what he does. Um, and so their question, though, is... Um, if Jesus has already paid for their sins, then why do unbelievers later have to pay for their sins again by being cast in the lake of fire? They're not paying for their sins again. Uh, they didn't. Uh, they didn't pay for them, and they didn't accept the payment. Right? Um, you know, if if uh, if someone gives you a hundred dollars and you don't cash that check, you don't have the hundred dollars. So when you go to spend a hundred dollars, you got to come up with it somehow. Right? You don't have it. You could have had it. You could have had it paid for. Someone offered it to you as a gift but you didn't take it. So therefore, you're still short. And that's the problem. When a person stands before a holy God someday and their sins are not covered by the blood of Christ, then they're left having to uh, you know, stand on their own merit. And uh, as Revelation 20 talks about, they can bring truckloads of books full of good works, thousands upon thousands of, of books documenting every good work you've ever done in your life. And that's not going to be enough to pay for your sins. And so... Uh, the sins have been paid for. See that the atoning work of Christ on the cross was sufficient for everyone, but efficient only for those who believe. So unless you've personally appropriated that gift and received it, all gifts have to be received. You can't force someone to take a gift. Uh, then your sins remain un, you know, unpaid for. Jesus said in John 8, 24, if we don't believe in him, we will die in our sins. We will die in our sins. And so, uh, yeah, it's just not understanding the nature of the atonement. And the person who asked this question is a, uh, asking it based on, and I don't know where they're coming from overall, but you know, they go on to say, well, wouldn't this mean that God is punishing someone twice? Uh, no, no. He, he's, he's only, you know, all sins only have to be paid for once. So they've been paid for, and you can accept that payment. And if you don't, then you'll have to pay for them yourself. I mean, that's just basic uh, logic. And uh, the fact is the atonement of Christ does not save anyone. If it did, everyone in the world would be saved. It would be universalism. The atonement of Christ makes it possible for people to be saved if they simply receive Jesus Christ by faith. The one and only condition, mentioned more than 160 times in the New Testament alone. By the way, we have an appendix at the back of my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, that lists all of those verses that I frequently talk about. But again, more than 160 times, the New Testament conditions eternal life upon faith alone in Christ alone. That's how you receive the gift. If you don't receive that gift, you're going to have to pay for it, uh, you know, your, pay for your own sins yourself. All right, here's a, another question. Thanks for that question, by the way. Uh, it's a good one, and it's one that uh, comes up a lot. Uh, here's a question. Let me see if I can get to the meat of it. I'm reading your book, Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 2. Uh, my question is this. Um, why do people think the covenant of the Antichrist is with Israel? The verse says he will confirm a covenant with many not with Israel. Okay, great question. Um, it's it's actually quite clear in the context of Daniel chapter nine uh, that you know the whole passage begins. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and your holy city. That's Israel, and so this is a seven-year period that relates explicitly with Israel. So the covenant is with Israel and with other nations. Remember, the covenant is basically a peace treaty guaranteeing Israel's peace, which the Antichrist will honor for the first three and a half years, but then he will break it and turn his wrath against uh, 
Israel in the second half. So remember, in the tribulation, that 70th week of Daniel, that seven-year period, you've got the wrath of God and the wrath of Satan kind of both being poured out on the earth. But yeah, there's no question that this covenant is a Jewish covenant. Um, and, uh, you, know, the, uh, you know, it's the 70 weeks for his holy people and his uh, holy city. But I do think, as this person uh, implies, that it is a, you know, a larger covenant. It's a, basically a global covenant of peace so that uh, you know, Israel is, you know, has a relative peace. Now, by the way, when we talk about the first three and a half years of the tribulation being a time of peace for Israel and the second three and a half being a time of persecution, we use those terms only as a description of, you know, the way in which the enemy comes against Israel. It is not, it is no mean, by no means meant to imply that the, the first three and a half years of the tribulation are going to be a peaceful time. It's going to be all hell breaking loose on earth with the sealed judgments of God and the... Uh, just all of the chaos that ensues after the rapture and evil men, you know, doing evil things, the the beast and the false prophets setting up their regime and their their control grid. So yeah, it's going to be a pretty devastating time and the seal judgments alone talk about a lot of death and earthquakes and things like that. But as it relates to enemy nations with Israel, it'll be a time when no one's coming against Israel during that first three and a half years. So great question. Uh, let's see. Um, here's a question from someone who says, I've always read and heard that the rapture will be instantaneous in the twinkling of an eye, a nanosecond, but they recently listened to a uh, guest on uh, Prophecy Watchers. Hey, hello to Prophecy Watchers. We love you guys. We love Prophecy Watchers. Thank you for what you've done for NBW Ministries. But anyway, they listened to a, a guest on that program, and they, this person, this guest on the show, uh, suggested that um, you know, it might not happen uh, quickly. Well, I don't know. Obviously, I can't comment because I haven't listened to that program and I'm not familiar with the argument that the person is making there. But uh, all we can go by is 1 Corinthians uh, 15. And 1 Corinthians 15, one of the key rapture passages says, I Behold, I tell you a mystery. Verse 51, We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. So, I mean, it is biblical that the rapture is going to happen instantaneously, uh, uh, you know, whether the world will see that or not, I tend to think they will, <clears throat> but uh, doesn't mean it's necessarily going to uh, be some kind of a secret, uh, but I do think uh, it will happen quickly because that's what 1 Corinthians 15 uh, tells us. Uh, here's another question uh, that just came in uh, in the last few days. I'm <clears throat> getting into some of the more recent ones, and by the way, if you you know, have not had your question answered yet. Uh, we've we've not forgotten you. We've got them flagged, and we'll get to it, uh, if not today, in a future uh, episode of uh, Dr. Hickson answers your question. Uh, here's a question about uh, life during the millennium for people who uh, are born in the millennium, and of course they'll need to be saved. Uh, everyone at the beginning of the millennium is a Christian. Uh, those who survive the tribulation and are believers, they will enter the millennium in their physical bodies. But as they have children, those children will be born dead in their trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. And like all people, they'll have to trust in Christ. And so this person says, uh, do I think there will be Bibles in the millennium that they can read? Um, will there be Bibles that the surviving tribulation saints possibly take with them into the millennium king, millennial kingdom? Well, absolutely, there will be Bibles in the kingdom. I mean, it's not like uh, somehow every Bible on the 
face of the earth is going to be destroyed during the tribulation. Uh, there are you know billions of copies of the Bible in hundreds of languages all across the world, and those languages, uh, those Bibles will you know, while well, some of them may be destroyed with the chaos and catastrophe that takes place during the seven-year tribulation, uh, undoubtedly many of them will survive. Uh, so yeah, I think there will be Bibles, and you know, maybe there'll even be new Bibles printed during the millennium. But what will be unique about the millennium is that we will have the living incarnate Word of God present in bodily form, sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. So we won't necessarily need the living written word alone. Right now, the living written word, the Bible, is the only special revelation we have. We don't have you know, apostles and prophets running around giving new revelation today. We have the Bible. When Christ is, comes back and is on the earth, he will be the living incarnate word, and he can give us you know, absolute truth every time he speaks. And so I think there'll be multiple ways for people to hear and understand the gospel during that time. Christ could tell them, other believers will tell them, and of course they can read the Bibles that are present at that time. So thanks for that question. That's a good one. Um, let me see here. Okay, I think I've already answered that one. Um, okay, um, can you explain whether the Sermon on the Mount is intended as a model for Christian living or targeted primarily to the Israel and to Israel and the Pharisees? Uh, okay, good question. Um, all Scripture is profitable. All Scripture is relevant, and we can take timeless truths and apply it to our life from any portion of Scripture. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, though, in context, was Jesus' uh, way to get the attention of the first century Jewish leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, who had become very legalistic and had you know, missed the point of you know what the Old Testament law was all about. The law wasn't a means of salvation. It was a foreshadowing of the ultimate Lamb of God. It was the book of Hebrews talks about how the sacrificial system was a shadow of the substance that is to come, and that's Christ, of course. Uh, but people of all ages have always been saved by grace through faith. You know, in every age, and Abraham is a good example of that. Genesis fifteen six, he was justified by faith. That is declared righteous by faith. So Jesus comes along in the first century, one of his first major sermons, the Sermon on the Mount. He's trying to get. Uh, he's trying to correct a false understanding that the Jews had developed, uh, especially the Jewish leaders, by that time. And that's why he comes along and, and says, you know, you have heard it was said such and such, but I tell you this. You have heard it was said, you know, don't murder, but I tell you, tell you don't hate. You have heard it was said, don't commit adultery. I tell you, don't lust. And he's, he's basically trying to get them to see that it's not their outward, you know, actions of, of, you know, being able to dot their I's and cross their T's and keep a checklist of do's and don'ts that's going to get them into the kingdom. They have to have perfect faith righteousness. In fact, Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, unless you're right, unless you're perfect, as the Heavenly Father is perfect, you'll never get into the kingdom. And he also says in chapter 5, verse 17, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you'll never get into the kingdom. So what he's talking about there is that it's not self-righteousness, that matters. It's faith righteousness. You have to trust uh, in Christ. And so he's really indicting the Jewish leaders for their lack of faith and their legalistic perspective that as long as they had, you know, the big phylacteries around their neck and the loud prayers and the clanging coins in the collection pot, uh, the beautiful robes, and they just kind of lorded it over everyone. As long as they did that, they thought they were going to be first in line to get into the kingdom. And Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 not so fast. It's, it, it's your heart that matters. Have you trusted in me? Do you have faith 
righteousness. And so he ends the Sermon on the Mount by reminding them that many will say to me in in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not done all these things in your name? But I'm going to say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. So uh, I think lots of rich truth there that can be applicable today. But uh, the Beatitudes, those types of things, all of those are just basically Jesus' way of trying to use a shock effect to adjust the thinking uh, of the of the Pharisees at the time. So that's why he says, you know, blessed are the meek. Well, the Pharisees thought, oh, it's the mighty and the strong that have it all together. And blessed are the persecuted. And they, the Jews had begun to understand at that time that, oh, the persecuted, that means something must be wrong with you, kind of the Job's friend's perspective on life. So uh, it's not necessarily a rule of life for the kingdom or today. It's essentially... Uh, just a rhetorical device that Jesus uses to remind people of, you know, the kind of righteousness that heaven demands. And the righteousness that heaven demands is perfect righteousness. And that's why, by the way, the very first thing that we read after the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' encounter with uh, the centurion. And uh, the centurion, a Gentile, of course, uh, uh, is commended by Jesus for having great faith. And Jesus says in Matthew 8, I have not seen such great faith in Israel. Uh, so, you know, here he's rebuking the, the Pharisees who are supposed to be the leaders of Israel and commending a dirty, rotten Gentile. Why? Because the Gentile had a faith, the Pharisees didn't. So uh, thanks for that question there about the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, here's a question. Uh, is there... Uh, oh, yeah, here, here's the question, okay, that I just alluded to uh, earlier about 1 Peter 3 and uh, Ephesians and, um, you know, what Christ did when he went uh, during the, those three days. So let me answer this again. I've answered it several times recently, but it, it, just coincidence because uh, obviously if the person had heard these answers, they wouldn't have asked the question because it's the same question. Uh, so... Um, First uh, Peter three. Let me read the passages uh, first, uh, so we can kind of keep it in context. First Peter three eighteen. Uh, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Uh, who were these spirits that Jesus preached to? I believe in this passage, in the context, Jesus, during that time, went to preach bad news of justice and judgment, sort of an in-your-face, you know, see, I, you, know, you, you didn't win after all, to those fallen angels, the sons of God from Genesis 6, that, uh, you know, were put in prison in Tartarus awaiting their final judgment someday. So Jesus basically went and told them that the, he had broken the power of death, and uh, that they've they've lost. Remember, demons are not these fallen angels are not omniscient. They don't know what all is going on. They weren't witnessing what happened at Calvary. So I believe that's what, in the context there, he's talking about because he goes on to reference Noah and the days, the things in Noah's day, and uh, also in Second Peter's in his second letter, he explicitly talks about those fallen angels uh, in chapter two, verses four and five. So that's what I think is going on in First Peter. Uh, chapter 3. Uh, but back to the question from the listener, there's a difference of opinion as to where Christ went between his death and resurrection. Well, people will sometimes correlate the passage I just read, uh, which again, I think is just Jesus preaching to these you know, d- demonic spirits in Tartarus during the three days he was in the grave. 
to let them know, hey, you're, you lost. They will correlate that with Ephesians 4, 9 and 10. And, and even though there, I don't think that's a valid um, you know, cross-reference, uh, people make the connection. Because in Ephesians 4, verse 9, it says, Now this he ascended, what does it mean, but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And so uh, this ascending and descending... Uh, I believe that when it says he descended into the lower parts, I think it's referring to Christ's incarnation. Uh, he, he could not have ascended to the right hand of the throne of God unless he first came to the earth. Uh, but again, some people take this descended as if it means descending into the earth, and therefore they relate it to 1 Peter 3 that we read a moment ago and say that Jesus somehow preached to people uh, that were believers to sort of set them free or relocate them from one place to another. Uh, and I just don't take that view. And besides those two passages, there's really no other indication in Scripture that that type of thing would go on. I believe every person who dies go, that's a believer goes immediately to be in the presence of the Lord. So thanks for that question. Uh, here's a question from a listener about 1 John 3.1. Wonderful verse. Behold what man of, the, of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. Um, they said some passages or some English translations say children of God. Some people say sons of God or some you know translations. And since sons of God in the Old Testament are angels, uh, you know, what is there a difference between the Son of God and the children of God? Well, first of all, 1 John 3, 1, of course, was not written in English. It was written in Greek. The Greek word is technon, meaning children. It's, it's, a, it's a clear, unambiguous world, a child, a descendant, a prosperity, or posterity, rather, of, of a person. Uh, the King James is the only one that I found that translates it sons of God. But again, that would have nothing to do with the sons of God in Hebrew, going back to Genesis 6 and, and many other places, Daniel, uh, I mean Job, uh, where it talks about sons of God. Uh, no connection there. But the, the bottom line is it's, it, the better translation is children of God. And that's what happens. We become part of the family of God when we trust in Christ and we're now uh, a child of God. So hopefully that helps answer that question about 1 John uh, 3.1. Let me see if I can get to a few more here. Um, the this person is asking about the Constitution of the USA, and and they believe that it was given by special revelation, and that God, uh, you know, inspired men uh, to you know put it down in the same way that He inspired the Jewish people of the Old Testament to write the the, the writers of Scripture in the Old Testament. Well, I appreciate the comment, but I couldn't agree, couldn't disagree more strongly. Uh, I, there's no way that as great a document as the Constitution is, a, a democratic republic, a uh, great form of government, uh, and there's no doubt that there were many patriotic men involved in it. Um, but uh, it is certainly not inspired. It's not on par with Scripture. Uh, and uh, secondly, uh, there were a lot of Luciferians and Satan worshipers that were involved in the, the Founding Fathers as well. And I won't take the time to rehash that, but I talk about it in Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 2, where I uh, detail how God's fingerprints were on the Founding of America, but so were Satan's. And so, uh, yeah, I uh, the only, connect, only, I guess, <coughs> comparison or analogy between the Bible and the Constitution is 
the Bible is supposed to serve as our rule of life as Christians and, and the infallible you know, standard. And in America, anyway, our U.S. Constitution is supposed to be our ultimate standard for the rule of law, for how we, you know, how we govern our country. Uh, sadly, both have come under attack and are not really uh, being used uh, like they should be. Uh, next question is about the Olivet Discourse, so Matthew 24, 40, and 41. I actually just talked about this with uh, uh, Tommy Ice, Dr. Thomas Ice, uh, when we did our podcast last Friday about uh, debunking lies about the rapture. But uh, in Matthew 24, 40, and 41, uh, Jesus says, Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour the Lord is coming. And uh, I, you know, clearly have shown in many different ways. We have a whole DVD series on the Olivet Discourse, eight DVDs. Uh, we have, I have a chapter on it in my book, What Lies Ahead, and I've talked about it, uh, you know, for almost 30 years at prophecy conferences and classrooms. Uh, the Olivet Discourse is totally Jewish. It's not about the church. The church, as Tommy and I talked about Friday, did not even... Uh, you know, was not even alluded to till the next day in the upper room when Jesus makes the first ever reference on earth to something called the church and the rapture. So the rapture, the first reference anywhere in the Bible to the rapture is John 14, and that happened the day after the Olivet Discourse. But moreover, the whole Olivet Discourse is about Israel and the second coming and when will the kingdom come. And Jesus makes the analogy with the days of Noah, and he says, uh, of that day and hour, Noah is no, no one, not the angels of heaven, but my father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man uh, be. He's basically entering a series of passages here where he's reminding people that the, during the tribulation, even though we know it's going to be a seven-year tribulation, people will still not know the exact moment Christ comes back, and it'll catch people off guard. It'll come at an unexpected time for them in that day. And in the same way that uh, in Noah's day, they, people were warned that judgment was coming, they ignored the warnings, and they were swept away in judgment. At the end of the tribulation, having been warned again and again that judgment is coming, many people will still reject the gospel, take the mark of the beast, and they'll be swept away in judgment. And the analogy with Noah here is just that. It's a, it's a figure of speech uh, called a simile, a comparison using like or as. As the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Well, what's the comparison? Obviously, he's not intending to compare everyday life and every jot and tittle of things that go on day to day with something that was 2,000 years before Christ to something that's 4,000 years later, if the rapture were to happen in our time. Uh, he's just saying that in the broader sense, they were warned and, and ignored it, and people will warn it and be ignored again. So when he says, uh, and because he explains it, as the days of Noah were, it'll be similar at the second coming. And then he says, for, that's the Greek word gar, it's an explanatory gar, or you know, explaining how this is, this is going to be the case. And, and it's going to be the case that in Noah's day, they were just, you know, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving a marriage, going throughout, throughout their daily routine, whatever that was at that time, uh, ignoring the warnings until the day that Noah entered the ark. They did not know until the flood came and swept them all away. Literally, in Luke, it's, he talks about he destroyed them all. That's what the floodwaters did to the unrighteous. And Jesus says, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. He's not try, intending to say that, oh, people are going to be, 
you know, eating and drinking and, you know, it's just going to be a wonderful life. That's not it at all. He's just saying that whatever, you know, people will be doing in that day and in the tribulation time, it might be trying to find shelter. It might be trying to find food. It might be trying to, you know, whatever. Uh, they're going to be ignoring the warnings and the flood will come and sweep them away. So, um, you know, it should be self-evident, really, if you if you carefully read the scripture, that this is not a rapture passage, because the analogy would make no sense. I mean, think about it. In Noah's day, who was left behind on the earth? It was the righteous, Noah and his eight members of his family. At the rapture, who's left behind on the earth? The unrighteous, the unsaved. At the in Noah's day, who was taken off the earth? You know, who was taken away? The unrighteous, they were swept away in judgment. At the second coming, I mean, at the rapture, who's taken away? The righteous. It's just the opposite. So back to their question, the two men in the field, one taken, the other left. The one that's taken is taken away in judgment by the floodwaters, you know, like they were in Noah's day, and at the judgment of Christ when he comes back with a sword proceeding out of his mouth. Uh, the two men, women grinding at the mill, one taken, the other left. One taken is taken away in judgment. And so, yeah, it sounds kind of rapture-esque, and, you know, especially thanks to Larry Norman's famous 1970s song that applied this to the rapture. A lot of people think it's the rapture. It's not the rapture. It's the second coming. And the ones left behind uh, are, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the, right, you know, the righteous, uh, the ones that inherit the kingdom. Uh, not the ones that are unsaved. So hopefully that helps answer that question. But again, we've got much more in more detail. I was going kind of fast there because I'm trying to get through a lot of these questions, but definitely it's not the rapture. Um, let's see. Uh, do This is a question someone says, Do Old Test in the Old Testament, did people think they could get saved by obeying the law? Uh, or, uh, you know, when did grace come in? Well, grace has always been the only means of salvation by grace through faith um, they did not think they had to obey the law to get saved they eventually begun to think that began to think that uh, because they you know misinterpreted the law but the the uh, law was put in place as a steward until Christ came and it was just a way to keep order to kind of help them communicate with God interact with God it was just his system of uh, you know his stewardship, his economy, if you will, his dispensation for the Jewish people, but it was never a means of salvation. Uh, people in every age from Adam forward are saved by only one thing, faith. It's, it's a free gift, but it's received by faith. And I mentioned Abraham being justified by faith a moment ago. But uh, yeah, they eventually began to miss the point, and they, like so many do today, elevated works and the law to a level of supremacy, and the law became the means of getting saved. Uh, but Paul says, by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. So there's no way you could have been saved by that way. Uh, but they did, uh, uh, you know, uh, did you know, think that. Uh, the, the listener goes on to ask, did they even understand that there's a heaven and so forth? Yeah, they did. They definitely understood. It was a little more uh, vague. We have a lot more teaching in the New Testament about heaven and hell than we did in the Old Testament, but they absolutely knew there was an afterlife. 
You know, the prophets would talk about prepare to meet your maker. David talked about, you know, going to see his son, his infant son who had died. So they understood that there was an afterlife in heaven, and they understood that only the righteousness of God could make you uh, right with him, and you received that by faith. Uh, Here's a question about the everlasting gospel in Revelation 14. I talked about this recently with uh, Dr. Nathan Jones from uh, Lamb and Lion Ministries. as you get closer uh, to the end of the tribulation, in order to fulfill Jesus' promise that the gospel would be preached to the uttermost parts of the earth, everyone on earth will hear the gospel before, before the second coming. <clears throat> in order to make that happen, uh, you know the 144,000 are going to do a great job evangelizing the world, but they won't be able to reach everybody. So as in the waning days of the tribulation, God sends an angel to preach the gospel. Uh, and so this person uh, sent a, a, a pretty good question, a detailed question about <clears throat> different kinds of gospels in Scripture and, uh, and so forth. Um, I just don't take it the same way this uh, person does. I think it's a simple, in this case, good news about uh, the, the, the Messiah is coming back. Christ is coming back. You need to believe in him. Uh, the word gospel in and of itself is not a technical term. It just means good news. It can mean uh, good news you know, about a number of things, uh, good news about winning a victory in a battle, good news about a king returning home, that kind of thing. And I talk about this in my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong. But it is also true that in certain contexts, it has a specific meaning of the good news by which we are saved. Uh, that is, believing in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again. And I think that's the way it's used there. Uh, it's the, you know, just labeled as everlasting gospel, but I don't think that's intended to distinguish it from uh, the other references to the good news about salvation. Um, here's a question. What would be the best translation to read to a 14-year-old? Well, you know, I believe we shouldn't dumb down people. So I would I would read a New King James or New American Standard and, and teach them the key biblical terms uh, like justification, propitiation, reconciliation, redemption, uh, sanctification, those types of words. Uh, um, you know, let's let's give children credit. You know, uh, we've we've done a good job of dumbing down kids. Uh, you know, the Luciferians have when they took over the compulsory government schooling system and made it compulsory. Um, but um, you know, don't sell your kids short. So, um, uh, you know, to teach kids to love the Word of God, and I think a 14-year-old can easily understand uh, the language of the New King James or the New American Standard. Um, Let's see. Here's someone who, I, can, I think I mentioned this earlier, uh, takes the view that he, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 11 and 12, that uh, when it says it will happen in that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand, the remnant of the people. Um, so I don't, I, don't, uh, I don't equate that second uh, gathering. I don't, I don't believe that that second gathering implies there's some other unmentioned first gathering. And that's, this is the passage that people go to when they try to say that 1948 was the first one. Uh, if, if Isaiah 11 is predicting that the one that happens when Christ comes back, uh, which Isaiah 11, 12 goes on to talk about the four corners of the earth, which Jesus mentions in Matthew 24, 31, where he's going to regather Israel from. No question this is referring to the coming of the kingdom and the second coming of Christ. Well, if that's called a second, then that must have been a first. And therefore, 1948 is the first. Uh, I understand. It's not that I haven't studied this. I've studied it for years and, and had discussions with some of the great uh, you know, colleagues and friends of mine, like Arnie Fruchtenbaum. Uh, he and I 
talked about this at length, and uh, we just don't agree on that viewpoint. But uh, the the writer, the listener here is in good company. A lot of dispensational scholars would hold the view that 1948 constitutes the first regathering uh, in the context of uh, Isaiah's talking about the second coming as involving a second regathering of Israel. I just don't see it that way. I think the second here is just all-inclusive, meaning given all the other times Israel's come and gone, this will be the final regathering. That's the way I take that passage. Uh, and, you know, there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, it's definitely ambiguous, so I don't think it's as clear as some people try to make it seem, and they make they get real dogmatic about it and think, oh, if you don't think 1948 was the fulfillment of a prophecy, you're a heretic. Oh, well, then you don't believe in imminency, which, you know, makes you a heretic, I guess. I don't know. I, you know, I don't like to throw around the word heretic. I just think we have an honest disagreement about that. My view is the next prophetic event on God's calendar is the rapture, period, full stop. Therefore, there are no prophecies explicitly stated in Scripture that will be fulfilled before the rapture. That's the reason I think Gog and Magog happens after the rapture, uh, not before. So uh, hopefully that helps clarify that. Um, here's another comment. Again, this person also cited Arnie Fruchtenbaum. Boy, I love Arnie. Uh, I mean, he's just brilliant, and I've learned so much from him, but we don't agree on everything, and, uh, you know, maybe someday as I continue to study these things, I'll change my view on certain things, but, you know, Arnie has a great teaching where he articulates the distinction between Abraham's bosom, Sheol, paradise, heaven, hell, all that. Uh, I just, uh, uh, you know, don't go into that level of detail as I've talked about. Uh, I think a lot of those terms are synonymous. Uh, this person says um, that uh, what's you know they would asked if I would talk about modern day prophets and how come so many people you know think about that there's modern day prophets today giving new prophecies. Well, I don't believe that. I don't believe uh, that God is giving new revelation on par with Scripture today, uh, and I don't think that the prophets you know prophets are needed today because we have the Word of God. Now, some people use the term prophet and apostle just in a, as a synonym for teacher. I don't think that's a good idea. It's confusing, and that's not what the terms mean in Scripture. Uh, so I wouldn't do that. But uh, there's a whole group of people out there who suggest that God calls prophets today just as he did before the Bible was written, and that those are his envoys, his spokesmen, and that he gives them direct revelation, and they are supposed to uh, be announcing it um, you know, to others. Couldn't disagree more. Um, uh, you know, I know Dr. Andy Woods has written some great stuff about that in his notes. If you check his website, you know, I've talked about it in my pneumatology course that I've taught for years. Uh, yeah, I don't, uh, don't think there are new prophets uh, today. Uh, okay, here's a, just a general question. This person says, you know, we have cash in our house. Uh, do you feel it's better to have it in silver and gold than cash. Well, again, I'm not a financial advisor. I always say that. That's why I start by again, because <laughs> I say that a lot. Um, but I do believe that you need a little bit of both. I think when uh, the end of the world, as we know, it happens and the economic system of this country crashes, you're going to need cash at first in the immediate aftermath. But very quickly, cash will become, in my view, useless. Uh, and they will outlaw it. So then you'll need a physical means of exchange, some tangible commodity that's worth bartering, and that's where silver and gold come in. But not just silver and gold. There are other things that you can barter with, uh, food, uh, weapons, ammunition, 
supplies, things that will be of practical nature or inherent value like silver or gold that will come in handy. So, um, uh, so the question was, if we have cash in our house, do you feel it's better to have it in coin? I think you need both. I, I would have some cash, small bills in particular. Uh, $100 bills aren't going to do you much good if you need a roll of toilet paper because someone will not give you change. They'll say, here's the toilet paper, but it's going to cost you $100. But if you have a $5 bill, they, they might trade you, you know, uh, some food or whatever supplies you need at that moment for that $5 bill. Um, let's see. Uh, here's a question about 1 Samuel uh, 16. I think I've addressed this one uh, before, but it's been a while. This is the, uh, the uh, what was it, the evil spirit, um, the harmful spirit. Let me call up the text, 16, 14. Um, you know, what was this uh, e evil spirit that God allowed to trouble Saul? Uh, it's fun to speculate. There's some weird views out there, I'm sure, but whatever it was, it was God's instrument of discipline uh, for Saul departing from God. Uh, when people depart from God, you know, it's never a good idea and there's going to be consequences. So uh, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit uh, from the Lord tormented him. It was a, an agent of God's discipline. Um, and that this person asked a couple of follow-up questions here. The word pharmakeia, it's translated sorcery in the book of Revelation. Uh, I talk about this in my Spirit of the Antichrist uh, volume 1, chapter 9, um, but in Revelation 9, 21, uh, we see the uh, noun pharmacon when it says they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. And then in Revelation 18, uh, we see the noun pharmakeia, uh, very similar uh, when it says, uh, talking about Babylon here, uh, your merchants were the great men of the earth for you. By your sorcery, all the nations were deceived by the selling of drugs. So that's the Greek word pharmakeia, translated sorcery in Revelation. And it's where we get our English word pharmacy from. Uh, however, of course, you know, etymology is, is different from meaning. And so it's not like if you go to a pharmacy to get an antibiotic because you got a serious infection, you're practicing sorcery. Uh, uh, but uh, this person is asking, um, you know, when the Bible speaks of pharmacaea, does this include chronic medicine like blood pressure medicine or cholesterol medicine or those types of things? Uh, absolutely not. I mean, I think there's reasons enough to avoid most medicines, period. It's not that it's sorcery. It's just not healthy. Cholesterol medicine, for example, uh, you know, it's just if you do the research, it's, it's, it's not a good idea to take those statins. Um, but, uh, you know, certainly there are some medicines that are life-saving and we want to take them. It doesn't mean that taking medicine means you're practicing the sorcery. Um, another person says that, uh, or the same person asks, you know, should we avoid homeopathy? Um, and uh, again, there are some occultic practices that that make use of you know farm you know of, of chemicals and potions and homeopathy and things like that but that doesn't mean that all of them are uh homeopathies uh, uh using drugs to treat disease and, and those types of things um, natural drugs and things um yeah it doesn't mean you're practicing sorcery if you do those things um but 
Uh, as a rule, I do think it's interesting that ever since the uh, Rockefellers and others took over medicine in the early 20th century, they by design, and they're of course all Satan worshipers and Luciferian elites, they were you know using drugs to you know alter people's minds to just you know destroy humanity really. So as a whole, yeah, the, the farm, the whole pharmaceutical industry has a deep you know undercurrent of demonic presence. But that's not to say that God can't use medicine in certain cases to heal. Not all medicine is bad, I guess is what I'm saying. So hopefully that uh, helps there. Uh, same th question, interestingly enough, these came in about nine hours apart. A uh, person asking about medicine in the Bible and is it okay to, to use antidepressants and things like that. So I would say the same thing. They also asked, is it a sin to use herbal medicine? That's homeopathy that we just talked about, or similar anyway. Uh, to alleviate depression. Absolutely. I think, you know, what did people do before the early 1900s? I mean, you know, we had 5,900 years of surviving, uh, you know, on our own with just natural remedies uh, until, you know, Western medicine came around. Now, of course, obviously things like antibiotics and penicillin, those types of things helped us be able to treat diseases that we weren't able to before. But, uh, to think that somehow we had 5,900 years where we, we didn't have a Walgreens or a CVS on the corner, and, you know, how did we survive? Well, of course, we used natural remedies. And so, uh, yeah, I don't see any problem with that from a moral perspective. Uh, one more. Um, let's see. This is a, um, let's see, this is a long email. Let me see if I can cut to the chase here. Uh, I wanted to get this one because it was such a sweet email, and I really appreciate them. I'm praying praying for this person uh, from Charleston, South Carolina. Um, let's see. Um, th th basically, it's talking about uh, giving up. So they, they're talking about some of the scenarios that I've talked about on my programs and in my books and with our World Events Update with Randy. And, um, you know, you know, constant vigilance can be exhausting, um, um, you know, they shared a personal experience of things that they went through, um, and uh, they understand the value of prepping, but, um, uh, you know, I'd much, here's the key quote, I'd much rather go home as I'm already very, very weary of this world, growing very weary. I'm not saying I'd be suicidal, but I wouldn't mind it one bit if I didn't survive long in that kind of world. Um, is it wrong for me to have this feeling of not caring whether or not I survive? Well, you know, there is a biblical reference here that comes to mind. In Philippians, Paul said that uh, he was kind of in a, in a straight betwixt the two. On the one hand, desiring to depart and be with Christ. He, he knew there's a value for a believer in dying and seeing Christ, and yet realizing it was more needful for him to stay behind for the uh, Philippians. And so I think... Uh, you know, God, you know, does not want anyone to give up. A suicide is wrong. You shouldn't do it. It's a sin. It's a permanent answer to a temporary problem. Uh, God has us here for a reason. The sanctity of life is something that 
we often forget it doesn't have to do just with abortion and the unborn. It's, it's all life is sacred. All life is valuable. We are made in the image of God. We're his image bearers and we have a job to do. He has us here for a reason. He hasn't promised that our life will, will not be suffering. In fact, the word of God says we will suffer. Jesus promised that. So the quality of life doesn't give you the right to give up. That's why assisted suicide and euthanasia and all that is so abhorrent. It's just as abhorrent as abortion. Um, you know, we, 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 when people suffer, they, we say, oh, they're suffering. We should just you know, let them die. No, no, no. Death is something that God is, has appointed unto men, not something we take into our own hands. And so we, you know, even though we may be suffering, we want to you know, walk by faith and, and be strong and persevere, like I talked about yesterday at Plum Creek Chapel. Uh, and we want to live for the Lord. And uh, so, uh, you know, if, if at all possible, you want to, you know, fight to your last death here. So, but I understand what this listener is, is writing about here. It's tough. And uh, obviously, being in the arms of Jesus is much better than you know, living out these days when the, the globalists are taking over and taking all of our freedoms. I get that. But keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Remember, our home here is temporary. Our real citizenship is in heaven. And one day, we will see him face to face. But don't hasten that day uh, any other way than by the rapture. It's okay to say, come, Lord Jesus, but we don't want to give up. So, uh, you know, just uh, we need to be prepared. Remember, the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is of the Lord. We, those are not mutually exclusive. We need to do our part because we don't know when the Lord's going to come back. So, wow, we got through a lot. Thank you for indulging me. I hope some of those questions were uh, were helpful for those of you that didn't ask them. I hope for those of you that asked them, they were particularly helpful. Um, but anyway, keep the questions coming. Uh, I hope everybody has a a great uh, rest of the day. Uh, don't forget to uh, tune in tomorrow for Prophecy Night. If you live stream for us, uh, that's at 6 o'clock Mountain Time. Just go to notbyworks.org. Uh, or if you're in the Denver metro area, or if you're ever passing through. We had two uh, folks uh, visit us this past uh, yesterday, just yesterday. One from uh, uh, the east and one from uh, down in uh, Dallas. We were thankful they were in town and said, hey, we're going to stop in and, and uh, say hello to uh, JB and the good folks at Plum Creek Chapel. So come see us tomorrow night if you're in town. Uh, otherwise, tune in uh, by live stream uh, for Prophecy Night. And then uh, the rest of the week, we've got some great guests coming and some great material for you. But if we can ever do anything, feel free to reach out. As always, thanks for your prayers, your support, and uh, we just love and appreciate you. God bless.